What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined once again by Jordan Lips. Jordan, thank you for being here, dude. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Of course, dude. I have gotten a lot of requests to have you back on since last time we chatted. My team especially loves you. Like Jordan's faces on his Q&A are so funny. Um, I know Jody, our client success manager, is actually doing your program which she loves. And I always recommend anybody that like, if you're just looking for programming, that's not like you. And I know it sounds like you go pretty in depth with what you do there, where you're like, you're breaking down people's form videos. Um, I know she's been blown away with it. Like dude, it's also goes so in depth with, she's been so impressed with it. It's been super cool to hear. So um, if you are looking for standalone programming, just first and foremost, to shout that out. Jody has had an amazing experience with it. So um, shout out to you in that regard. As always, for our podcast, we do together. I'm going to link that up in the show notes. But I think we're good to skip the introduction since yeah. we were just on here pretty recently. Let's just go ahead and get right into the questions. we got some Q&A going today. So you good to go ahead and just get right into it? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, perfect, dude. All right, first question I have. How best to communicate your end goal vision to your coach? Um, yeah, how best to, how best to communicate your end goal vision to your coach? Well, the first thing that jumps to my mind is this is actually a collaborative thing. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying most people don't know what they want, but I would at least, if I'm the client, I would at least, I would at least, I would communicate it the best I can in terms of some combination of the totality of what your life looks like aesthetically, um, you know, how much work you want to be putting into tracking or not tracking, you know, what your quality of life and lifestyle you want to look like. And so I would make sure that you communicate each of those brackets. I think we have aesthetic goals, potentially strength goals, potentially. And I want you to think of them as different buckets because a lot of times to, to have a goal that's more ambitious of one of those buckets, it takes some of some sacrifices or trade-offs in another bucket. And so if you have like a very ambitious aesthetic goal, then you have to at least be recognizing what that will cost in terms of lifestyle and so there's part of me that thinks, hey, if I'm the if I'm the client, I want to communicate this. At least consider the totality of what that goal looks like, not just the aesthetic. I just want this one thing. At least begin to consider what that thing costs. Um, but I would also say keep an open mind that like you're probably coming to your coach because they have a really good ability to walk you through this process and what that really looks like. And so keep an open mind and and know that you're you're coming to the coach. And it, I know as a coach, it's very helpful when I have a client who has an idea of what they want. But I yeah. always know that there's room for that to evolve based on the conversations that we'll have. Um, a lot of times, you know, a recalibration of, you know, what it is you want based on what that thing costs. And so a recalibration of like, maybe you wanted a six pack when you started, but maybe you're realizing that like, Hey, like maybe being a couple percent body fat higher than that and having a better lifestyle, better lifts, better sleep and better recovery and stuff like that. Not that those things are always mutually exclusive, but just being open for those things to sort of evolve. So definitely come to the plate with an idea of what you want. Consider beyond just the aesthetics. What does your life actually look like at that point? What is the life of the person who looks the way you want to look? What does that person's life look like? But also be open for it to be collaborative because your coach, good coach probably uh, has a, not a better idea of that than you, but at least a, a, an understanding of how to kind of guide that conversation to get you maybe to a clearer picture of what that looks like. Absolutely, man. And as you said, I think going into first, I would say work with a coach that does at least like an initial call with you before you start. The communication there is so important. And going into that, really think through, okay, where do I want to be physically? That's important, of course, to be clear on. What do I want my lifestyle to look like, right? And part of the 
for the better part of our job as coaches is to make sure that you understand the trade-offs that you're making, right? Like effort has to match, match expectations. And I know we talked about this on our last podcast where it's, if I want to be the most jacked bodybuilder possible, I also have to understand the trade-offs that I'm going to make. And part of your coach's job is getting you clear on that. But then I really think a lot of times, I know when I first started coaching, I seemed to fall into the trap occasionally with clients of, we kind of got into a routine of doing the same thing over and over and over where it was kind of like, okay, I know initially set this goal and then we haven't really revisited where we're going for like months and months and months. And I think that's where it can kind of get uh, that vision or that end goal can kind of get lost. So I think as a coach also, it's so important to like for us, we always have a three month target and then a bigger picture that we're pushing the client towards and constantly revisiting that. Like in our tracker, this is something like even for us as coaches, every couple of weeks we have a reminder, hey, let's revisit where we're going, what the goal is for three months from now, just to make sure that we're always on the same page. Because I mean, even from like a, and this is more speaking to coaches, but I think that clients typically leave when they can't see where you're going anymore right because it is so easy to get caught in that like well the client seems pretty happy right like i feel like we're making pretty good progress but like if they can't see where you're going they're going to lose motivation typically and people are more likely than not going to leave so i think it's so important like from a coach's perspective as well to constantly be revisiting that and like if you feel like your coach isn't on the same page with where you're at anymore just bring it up right it's probably not like they're trying to like you guys have completely different visions, but maybe they just haven't done a good enough job explaining where you're going. But I think like that constantly revisiting, okay, like you said, recalibrating, because that will change over time as well. Maybe you're not willing to make the trade-offs that you were at the start, or shit, maybe you want more than you did at the start, right? But I think revisiting that super frequently is just so important. Do you, Any other do thoughts you, on that? Yeah, do you, I love that answer. I totally agree with that. I, um, I also have a, like, a comp, like a contrary feeling that I want to say that. Yeah. But, but also, and I know that you'll know what I mean, but there's also like, I think about whenever I do weekly check-ins, um, you know, and I'm going through my whole client list and we're doing weekly wrap ups and there's the occasional client, actually a decent percentage of them that are like just in such a good place. And like their nutrition, I come in data sheet, everything is where we want it to be, whether that's tracking very meticulously or that's loosely tracking or it's not tracking, whatever's happening. I, the way I have, I know you know this, if you look at a client name, it gives you a feeling. It always does. It's like you can get this all-encompassing feeling by just looking at a client right. name. You're like, this is the way I feel about how things are going with this person. And whenever I get the feeling of like this person's in such a good place, <clears throat> sometimes I, it's, it's a tricky balance of pushing people to be goal-oriented and also letting them be not goal-oriented and enjoy the moment and not be. And so I, I totally agree with you saying there's my coach brain will be like, hey, we got to revisit uh, we got to zoom out. We got to revisit our long-term plan. We got to think about, you know, just making sure that I know that you know that I know we're all on a track going in a direction you're happy with. <clears throat> but like, right. I also know that there's some element of, you know, can I get this person to really enjoy where they're at without it needing to be so tied to some objective place they're going? And that's so person dependent. And it's also within an individual that will change. And like, you you might have somebody, and I think about these people, I'm thinking of specific people in mind that like, we're very goal-oriented at the beginning, achieved some percentage of their goal, and we're happy with it, and are in cruise control now. And I think to myself, like, well, don't, like, if they really are enjoying their life, like, that should be the thing I'm promoting, not the, you know, you've been in maintenance for a while, like, you, what do you think? Let's do something, you know? Like, you don't oh, want yeah. to get like the, like the do, let's do something trigger happy as a coach. And so finding the right 
approach with the client of like, which, which are you going to do better with a more tangible objective, you know, broken down goal? Are you going to be, are you in such a good place right now that we should in, embrace the idea of backing away from that super goal oriented mindset? So I definitely think you, you are familiar with that balance and that happens a lot depending on the client and depending on the time. Yeah. And from that perspective, I mean, a lot of times the target we established that we're working towards or like the goal is literally like, Hey, we just want to continue to maintain this flexible lifestyle yeah. where this is easy for you. You're going out with your husband frequently. You guys get to enjoy these meals out. Like sometimes it is literally just like, Hey, we are maintaining and literally our quote unquote goal is just to stay exactly where you're at and enjoy this. So I think that that's a very good point. It's not always like, Hey, okay. You've been maintaining. Now, like, let's set these numbers that you have to add to like your bench press or whatever. Maybe the goal can literally just be maintenance. I, I could have framed phrased that better, but I, I think that, like that, that happens. Yeah, being on the same page with like what the client wants, I believe, is so important. Cool. All right, next question we have: What are some ways you get your head right for a gym session with no motivation? Oh, I find this one interesting because I've, I've found that it's not that I have enjoyed my training less. I'm less goal oriented than I once was, you know, I'm less like a physique wise goal oriented than I once was. And so that sometimes can be, you know, if you, if you have a specific goal, that's like, Hey, I'm looking to lose body fat or get leaner. You guys do some photo shoot work sometimes, or I have a strength goal. It's like easy to latch onto that objective goal. Mm -hmm. And so I, right now I don't necessarily have that. Um, for me, it is, it is something that if I were the kind, if I wasn't tracking my workouts and I didn't have a very, very specific objective understanding of what I'm doing when I'm going in that day, I would, I would, I would rarely go like the minute that that is structure is peeled away from me. And it's kind of like, and some people are the opposite. Some people like, the, I'd say, I'd say most people fall into a camp of enjoying this idea of knowing exactly what they do when they go in the gym. Like that is like, you know this, if you have a client who was never tracking their workouts, they go to tracking their workouts and aiming for progressions and having very specific, like going to the gym, knowing exactly what they're aiming for. It's a super fun experience. Um, and for me, if I don't, if I don't have that, like to, for me, that is what gets me to go knowing exactly what I have to do, because I have like just enough brain power to expend on going and trying hard. I don't, I no longer have the expenditure, the, the brain power to also think about what I'm going to do that day. And so for me, it is such a, it needs to be, I only have enough energy and motivation to get up, go and execute. I don't have this energy to like make a workout for myself, let's say. Um, obviously, you know, whether you're making your own workouts or not, it's about making it once and not making it new one every time you go into the gym. Um, and so I would say if you're not tracking your workouts and you're not aiming for progressions and you don't have like specific understanding of what's expected for you, like, or of you each time you go in the gym, really hone that. Because it can kind of weed through some of those non-motivational days when you're like, I know exactly what I have to do. I just need to go in and execute. Um, I hate this answer that I'm about to say, but it, it, yeah. the placebo of taking a pre-workout or coffee or something, like I, I don't love this answer. And I do, so I, I'm a huge advocate for stim-free pre-workouts. I think it's like my okay. favorite supplement in the world. Um, it's a little bit, it's like everything that the pre-workout has without caffeine plus a higher dose nootropic. And so it does give you some form of like a focus. Uh, and a little bit of like what feels like energy, but more than anything, sometimes it's like a habit stack placebo effect where like, I'll just make a pre-workout and I'll pound it. And I'm like, well, shit, I ain't wasting this on, and not going to the gym. And so sometimes I hate that answer. Cause I'm not like, Oh, you're not motivated. Pound some pre-workout within healthy doses of all of this stuff. It can be helpful for you to be like, Hey, like this, this is something that I know if I take this, it's going to put me in a good state to work out. And so I might as well kind of, 
you know, adult up and go ahead and do that. Um, yeah. I'm interested what else you, what, what you might say on that as well. Do you have a code you want to plug as well? I do actually. Sure. <laughs> I was just talking with you. But. Uh, you better plug it. I mean, this is how else am I going to pay for all of Cali's toys if I don't get this Legion code discount kickback? Yeah. Uh, no, I agree, man. I think one, just having some accountability does make a big difference. Like I'm the same way. I invest a lot of money in my coach. And I don't want to let him down. So honestly, part of it for me is just like, hey, I know I have to report to someone at the end of the week about my adherence and that that is straight up i'm investing a lot of money in this i want to follow through um i'm in a pretty similar place to you where i don't feel and this might be weird this i feel weird saying this but i don't necessarily feel like super fired to fired up the train very often it's more just at this point like hey this is a habit for me like every day i start with journaling where i like work through okay what do i need to do to feel fulfilled at the end of the day, right? And almost always, it because like, I'm I'm sure you get this as well. Like same thing with business. There's a lot of times where I just don't feel motivated to do the thing. But I know at the end of the day, if I feel like I half-assed it or I didn't do half of what I needed to do, and I just fucked around and wasted my time, I'm just gonna feel so disappointed. I, like that's the worst feeling for me. And I've kind of tried to detach from these big, like it used to be for me, like. Okay, when I'm like my motivation to train was I thought I'd finally like myself when I got super jacked, right? And so every day I was so stoked to train. I was so motivated. And I had this vision of a couple of years from now, I'm just gonna be fucking swole and I'm finally gonna feel so good. Um, and same thing with business for a long time. That's like where my head was at. But very much like, first of all, it never really works out like that, right? Like achieving the thing is never really going to make you as happy as you think it is, which again, this is kind of weird to like put out there. Like we talk about fitness and like getting people in shape, but I think it's important to understand very much for me. It's okay. At the end of the day, how do I need to have gone about this day to feel fulfilled, to not be disappointed in myself and just to, to feel like I'm growing more towards the person I need to become. And oftentimes that means, okay, like no matter how I'm feeling, I need to get my training in. I need to do X things with work. I need to like go above and beyond with all my clients. And I think for me, I think if you can look at it like that, rather than like, I have to set this goal that's motivated. I'm going to finally like be more jacked than Jordan or whatever. Like it never is motivating for very long. Yeah. There's, there's a, it's cliche, the, you know, you never feel bad when it's over. Like you always feel better when, after you do it, that is it's, the irony is that's something I only realized when I started to not look as forward to my workouts. And it mm-hmm. is 100% true. Like I always leave the gym feeling good. Like the workouts don't need to be, they're not such a huge time suck or they shouldn't be. If you're low, if you have low motivation to train, cause your workouts are 90 minutes, you got to drive 10 minutes each way and, and change your clothes. And it's a two hour ordeal. You have other issues. I'm not motivated. To, I would never be motivated to do that. It sounds terrible. Um, also if you're, you know, uh, if you, if you listen to this podcast, you probably, even know what a deload is and you probably are deloading, but if you're not deloading and you're running into low motivation to train, that is actually just a nervous system response. Like that is literally on some level. I laugh because of how freaking smart our body is. Like that is literally your body in an overreached under recovered state telling you to not train. Um, and so if you never deload, if you've listened to this and you're like, I've been training for years on end and I'm starting to get low motivation, like maybe it's because you're not cyclically dropping that fatigue. And the other thing that came to mind was like, just, and this sounds a little woo woo, but like just, just trying to identify as the person who goes anyway. Like I just, mm. and, and that's a fine line between go anyway, even when you don't feel like it. And there's a totally fine opportunity to listen to your body and take a rest day. Like it's an interesting line of like, 
push yourself to go anyway, because you want to, like, I want, well, I want to be the kind of person who doesn't weigh or, or doesn't let my actions weigh entirely on my motivation that day. Um, that's the kind of person I'd like to be. That's the kind of identity I'd like to have. Um, but there's also a fine line of like, today I'm supposed to train and my girlfriend just started a new job. Um, and she left at like seven 15 and I, we only brought one car here. So she has the car all day and I'm just not going to be able to train. And so there's a fine line for me of like, do I go to the complex gym? She's like kind of booty, like not great. Um, do I like Uber to the gym or do I just like, like, those are two things that might be like, oh, like get up and go like motivating, like, come on, man, do it. Don't let motivation, like get you down. But there's also part of me that's like, let yourself take a rest day. It's, you know, it's not the end of the world. And so there's a fine balance, I think, um, between like, you know, the sort of motivational advice of like, just fucking do it. And the, well, it's probably also okay to like, give yourself some grace and take a rest day or deload if you feel you need it. I couldn't agree more, man. I don't think I have any other thoughts on that. Um, next up we have, is it okay to push ahead with a building phase if you injure a limb? I can't do push movement. Is oh, I always laugh, not at people, but I just think the, the, I always like in my head, my brain is like messed up. Like when somebody asks me, is it okay? I always think like, okay, like, is like Voldemort going to come out and like Avada Kedavra you if you do this? Like, is it okay? <laughs> of course it's okay if you do this. Like it's not the end of the world. If we are going to add some context or attach some like pros and cons to this scenario, um, uh, depends on the injury. You know, if you're going to be injured for the next like month and you really want to push some pull and legs, and, 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 and frankly, I would at least take one step back and say, okay, you can't do any pushing movements at all. Like, and, and that might very well be true, but I think working with a coach to actually exhaust all of your options, cable work, you know, um, uh, band work, other things that can at least be muscle preserving, like maybe, but okay, maybe if you have surgery on your shoulder, okay, sure. But you're also not doing pulling movements then. And so right. it depends on the injury. Um, it depends how long the injury is. Depends what you can still do. You know, if you're like, I'm going to be out with six months and I can't do any pressing, I can't do any pressing. Can you do some, you can't do any pressing, but can you do any raising for your delts? Can you do any like adductive work for your, for your pecs? Like, can we still do something here? If the answer is yes. And you can kind of bridge that gap a little bit, then I'm, I'm cool with that. Go nuts. Um, if it's a leg, lower body limb and you can't, train that leg at all, let's say. I mean, this person gave a push example, so I'm giving a stupid other example. You could still push the gain and just gain upper body and still train that other leg. It depends on the severity of the injury and the length of the injury and how much you care about the musculature you can no longer work optimally. I know if I hurt my leg right now and I was in the middle of the gain, I'd still go gain because I just care way more about upper body anyway. And so it would be suboptimal and I would not be happy about it, but I would say, okay, if it's better than me hurting my arm because that would put, you know, more into a you know, suboptimal scenario of the stuff I care about more. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it does depend a lot on how it impacts your other patterns. So let's say just, she truly can't do any other pushing movements. Okay. I would say as well, like it's unlikely that that's probably not going to have some carryover to your pulling movements. Or I know like for me, when I separated my uh, AC joint, it was very much like, Hey, my pushing is what's primarily impacted, but really like I really still struggle to pull. There's a lot of pain there. Honestly, I just need to give that a little bit more time. And even like anything for a lower body, that's putting any type of load on the shoulder, even like a hack squat, like I can't do Right. So go ahead. I would bet if you have an injury that's so bad that you can't, it's either going to be an injury that's bad enough. Let's use this example. Like, let's say you're like, I have my shoulder injury and and it's a push. I can't push. 
I would, I would guess that the injury is either so bad that you also can't pull, and then I would not gain, or the injury is not so bad that you could probably find workarounds for certain muscle groups. Like if you are, if you're like, man, my shoulder's fucked, but I can still do all of my overhead pulling in my rows. My guess is that we can also find you some workarounds for certain muscle groups on the front end, right. your, your delts and your uh, delts, like front delts and pecs. And so it's probably one of those two categories. If your shoulders messing with you so much that you can't do push and you feel it and you can't, it's inhibiting your ability to row effectively, let's say, or pull down or do pulls, um, then I would not gain. But if, if you can do all that stuff, then you can, my guess is we can probably find a couple workarounds that can at least preserve the muscle of those, of those muscles. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we're very much on the same page with that. If it's to the point where this is impacting most of your movements, not shoulder pushing movements, we're probably not in a place to really productively build. But if that's not the case, again, you can probably find more grounds and we can probably still productively build. Um, why do some people lift their heads off of the bench on a press? Yeah, I've, I've, I've wondered anatomically why this is. And even just some of the answers that I've seen are just like, it's just a comfort thing. I would say that there's probably something going on here from like a, a like a momentum generation a little bit of the head lifting up and then being pressed down as there's a counter force going up. And so you're pushing up as you're pushing your back and your head away. And so would that be, would that fall into the category of like gamifying it or cheating it in some way? Probably not, especially if it's something that is standard across like all the times that you do. It's mostly in a flat DB press this happens. Um, mm -hmm. On an incline press, I feel like most people are like keeping their head wherever they're keeping it. I'm just imagining that. Uh, right. So I really don't think it's a big deal. I really think it's a comfort thing. And if you try it and you're able to get a good stimulus and it's not something where you really like this problem, people ask a lot about like, oh, well, like when, when is it, when am I using too much momentum or when am I using too much like body English where I'm like adding in other muscles? You kind of know, you kind of know when you're like gamifying this or like kind of bullshitting yourself or, or cheating the movement a little bit. This doesn't, in my opinion, fall into that category. If you try it and it feels comfortable, everything else is stable. You're letting your scapula move, good range of motion, good tempo. I'm cool with it. Okay, perfect. I'm glad that you didn't have like a, hey, this is exactly what's going on in your body because I didn't either. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I agree. I don't think it's a big deal. I don't think if it's not causing pain, I don't think it's anything that you should be concerned about. I know that like in, I don't remember if it's Cassim or Paul Carter, but I see like one of them always getting that question in their Q&A as well. I just really don't think it's a big deal. It's not like you're cheating. You're not like using your head to create too much momentum or anything of that nature. So yeah, nothing to be worried about there. There's um, also, also like a, like I watch, like I watch Cass does it. And I'm not saying what Cass does is perfect, but if there was a real issue with it, Cass would be the person who would pick <laughs> it. And so like, I if agree. you watch Cass pressing the 120s or whatever, like his head's moving a ton and so does Paul's, I guess. And so I'm not saying that they, that they are, you know, I'm not, that's not an appeal to authority, but at least it's like a moment of like, if you know Cass, you know he would nitpick anything that you could possibly nitpick in, a, right. in, a, in an attempt to be constructive, obviously. But but if he's doing it, then it's probably not. Then I would I would I probably feel pretty good about it. Hundred percent. Are RDLs and hip thrusts good enough to build glutes rather than squats? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, RDL and hip thrust is that was the question? Mm -hmm. um, yes. I mean, it's such a limiting question of like you neither neither is an is mutually exclusive you know like it's like it's rdl hip thrust enough to build the glutes like yeah any single exercise would be enough to build the glutes like you know you're probably not doing rdls and glute bridges 
over or instead of RDL or uh, RDL and Glutebridge or squats. Like it's probably some integration of all of this stuff. Just for people's understanding, if we look at like the glute bridge, it's a really isolated hip extension, really, really isolated. If we look at the RDL, it's a it's a hinge pattern with very little knee bend. And so it's more of, let's say, a blend between glute and ham, whereas the hip extension is very isolated on the glute. And then we have the RDL, which is more glute and ham blended together, which you can bias a little bit more depending on how you do it. And then we have the squat, which is more a blend of glute and quad. It's more of like a lower body press, less of a hinge. And so they are technically all three slightly different things. I think that you could look at the RDL and the glute uh, squat and say, okay, at least they're both lengthened position exercises. And so to some degree, they check a similar box. Uh, you, the, the question the question this person is asking is, do I need to do squats for glutes? The answer is no. Um, but I would probably incorporate some lower body pressing. So if you're doing that via a split squat, like a Bulgarian or, or even just a regular, so everyone's like, it's not a huge difference between Bulgarian and a regular split squat. There is a difference, but some form of split squatting where you're doing lower body pressing, maybe a glute dominant leg press, maybe a seated hack squat. Um, all of those can provide a nice swap for your traditional barbell squat. I'll level with you. If I, it's rare. We'll do in my, in my group at home, we'll occasionally swap it. Like if I'm having my gym group do a, like a, like a glute dominant leg press, we might do a glute dominant squat. Mm-hmm but you can very easily build a great fire glutes with, without squatting, but you probably have a lower body press in there, whether it's a, a, a seated hack or a, a split squat or a leg press, something like that. Okay. So it's pretty rare that you would program a squat with the primary outcome that you want being building the glutes. Is that accurate or no? If I have all other equipment available, yes. Um, yeah. And that's a personal thing. I think, I think people, some people are, it's a personal thing because I, and it ends up, so let's say I'm in, I have my group has a several hundred people in it. So I see, I get a really good, I get a really large scale view of what people do when they watch a form video and try and understand it and try and implement it. So if there's like a, um, an example of like, let's use the, I use the quad, whatever, we'll stick with this glute emphasis squat. What I end up seeing is like a lot of like good mornings. Uh, and it ends up being a good morning and that's an easy fix. We bend the knee a little bit more and, and we end up getting it. Um, but it ends up being such an awkward movement that turns into this like half hinge half. Like if you take the technique that usually comes out of a glute dominant squat, which by the way, some people do it amazingly well. I feel mm-hmm. like it's a lot easier to replicate that in a split squat pattern. It's I way agree. easier for me to get really powerful, a really powerful, really stable movement in a single leg position uh, with dumbbells in my hands, with a nice forward lean, uh, with keeping a neutral spine, than it is in a glute dominant squat. Now, the glute dominant squat's great. If you do it, it's fantastic. I know a colleague of mine, somebody you had on the podcast, Ruth, like Ruth does a really great glute dominant squat. I watch it and I'm like, this is just not what mine looks like. Um, right. <laughs> for me, it's never been a movement that has really clicked. Um, I've tried to program it. I do for, I did plenty of form videos on it. And so I really worked hard to get through it. And I just thought, you know, if I had everything else in the gym, I'd just go sit in a leg press, put my feet up high. And, and get a way more high, a high output scenario with a lot more stability that the leg press gives you. But if you don't have that and you're at home, you're going to do this at some point. You can't do split squats forever. You, you could, but you're probably going to want at least some like mental variation. And so it's, it's, Cass has said this a bunch of times. It's really stuck with me. It's like anytime somebody asks you about an exercise, it's just like compared to what other options that you have available. And if you don't have a lot of lower body pressing options because you're at home, then you best work on your glute dominant squat because we're going to use that for sure. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think kind of where she's coming from on this question, a lot of people have heard that you need to squat to grow your glutes and you hear about like, oh, you're getting your squat booty or nobody's actually ever said that to me. But I think it's a thing people say to other people. Um, a lot of times within the execution of it, I think that naturally for most people, it's a little bit more quad biased, as you said. And oftentimes, like with how people naturally execute it, it's just oftentimes not the most effective way to train your glutes if that's one of the primary goals that you want. Um, we can definitely tweak it, as you mentioned, like glute dominant squat to bias glutes a lot more. Typically, when we're programming for clients, so like I'll say, similar to you, unless it's something that we just don't have any other options, it's pretty rare that I'll program it. Really, when I'm looking at movement, at movement selection for most clients. I'm almost always looking at, okay, how can I put them in a position to be as successful as possible with as little thought as possible, right? And I think one thing with like a glute dominant squat is most people just have to think so hard about it, have to put so much work into it. Whereas like a glute emphasis rear foot elevated split squat similar to you is, or a glute focused leg press, like those are two great movements that we could get like the outcome that you want from that glute dominant squat. But they just come so much more naturally. For most people, it's a lot less frustration. It's a lot less like, oh, shit, okay, well, we didn't do it right this session. We probably didn't get quite the stimulus we wanted. So I think in most cases, it just doesn't make quite as much sense. But yeah. also, you have to look at, like, I, so I programmed in our second mesocycle, we did quad emphasis squats, which mm-hmm. is even, which might even be more difficult for the for the average person. I think the average person's natural proclivity to let their knees travel forward and to let them go over the toes and to really pursue that knee flexion is low. Like it's just like not normal. It's not something that we've programmed naturally programmed to do. We've been taught the opposite, frankly. And so I watched hundreds of people try and push their knees forward, try and stay more upright. And I'd say half the people in their most quad dominant technique possible, it was still a glute dominant squat because of long femurs, right? Because of like a long femur, short tibia, let's say, and don't, and, and long torso, let's say. And, and so a lot of this, this is like, you know, you can't do this on a large scale. And so what my goal for, let's say you're getting, let's say you're in a group and this isn't a great struck movement for you. It's not optimal. You make it as, as much as you can along the spectrum of knees forward to hips back. And so if you have somebody who's got really long torso, really long femurs, uh, they might do a, a glute dominant squat really, really well because naturally that's how they squat. And so it is some, you know, depending on if you're working with somebody one-on-one, this is something that they should be identifying of like, yeah, you're not going to be great at squatting upright. Like you're not built to be an Olympic weightlifter, but you might do a really hingy, really hip dominant squat naturally because this is how you're built. And so maybe we lean into that a little bit. Okay, absolutely. I think that ties in super well with the next question, which was ways to increase ankle mobility. It's preventing me to progress and squat because I lean forward. Because I what? Because I lean forward. Gotcha, gotcha. What 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 is the answer? <laughs> I know I know. What are we both going to say though? This is like someone who's like really want to work on my grip strength, and I'll be, and I'll just be like, well, okay, this is great. You do ten rep, three sets of ten reps of go by versa grips. And it's like, it's like the same kind of deal here is just like one long set to failure of go buy some wedges and get some heel elevation. And so that step one by far is get some heel elevation, go buy a pair of prime wedges or the ones on Amazon. I have a link in bio. You probably have a good one that you like. Go get some wedges because anytime we talk about mobility, how much mobility does somebody need? They need enough mobility to execute their movements in the way that they want to do them. And if you don't have that mobility, can I use a tool that allows me to get that mobility. So I don't have to spend extra time working on this. Now, a lot of people will be like, well, isn't working on ankle mobility important? 
I don't know. I mean, is it is it important? Like, is it stopping you from doing something in your day to day life that that is like when people think about grip strength, they're like, well, I really want to work on my grip strength. And I'm like, well, for what? You know, like as soon as you're you have enough grip strength to carry the groceries in in one trip, like that's the most grip strength you'll ever need in your entire life. Um, and so when it comes to ankle mobility, if you slap a pair of Aldi shoes on with a heel elevated or you stand on a wedge or both and you can achieve really nice amount of knee flexion, you can remain a little bit more upright. You can turn these lower body movements into a little bit more quad dominant version. If you can do that with a pair of wedges and not have to like sit there with like weird band exercises and stuff like for half hour after your workout, like to me, that's, that's a better use of your time. There's nothing wrong with working on ankle mobility, but if the ankle mobility is not inhibiting your day-to-day life, it is inhibiting your ability to stay upright in the squat and the wedge fixes that. And then all of a sudden you have all the ankle mobility you'll need in all aspects of your life. Then I would go ahead and, and use that option. I think that it's not, I just, I just, we only have so much time to spend on some stuff and people are like, how do I work on my ankle mobility? It's like, I right, do these like five drills afterwards. It's like, okay, why don't you just slap a pair of wedges on and you're going to be fine. And you can go back to your life where you have enough ankle mobility. That is so well put. This is a conversation I have a lot as well. And again, it's yes, you could, your ankles more mobile we could invest in an extra 15 20 minutes before every lower body day and really focus on the mobility yeah yeah but or we could just elevate your heels we could do get get the outcome you want in the same amount of time and as you said like is there anywhere else in your life where your ankle mobility is severely holding you back probably not right so thus is it necessarily worth the time investment do you program very much mobility, if any at all for clients. I, I used to program like these like fancy dynamic warmups because at that point when I just started online coaching, I was rehabbing my knee and I was rehabbing some like patella tendonitis. And so I was working with like a PTs through active life and we were doing a a lot of this mobility. And so I just like really drinking the Kool-Aid. And so I was like doing these like dynamic warmups and stuff. And I was just realizing that the workouts were getting long and that it wasn't making the kind of impact that I wanted it to make. And so I definitely, I definitely don't. Now, if I have a one-on-one client who's going to bring up something like this person brings up of like, Hey, how can I work on my ankle mobility? We'll have this sort of discussion. We'll get a pair of wedges first. We'll see how it goes. One thing I would add is like a lot of people, they don't know what they don't know. And so you might be asking, how can I improve my ankle mobility? But it might, you might have fine ankle mobility and you might have really short tibias, really long, uh, really long femurs, really long torso. And you're like, yeah, it's my ankle. And it's not, it's, you know, the ankle is one part of this chain that allows us to stay upright and drive our knees forward. It's just one part of that. And so you might not need, it might not be the ankle. That's the limiter. And I promise you, if it's, if it's just your ankle, that's the limiter. The minute you get wedges, it'll be perfect. Um, if you get wedges and it's still not perfect, then it's probably a structure thing. And even if you do your best, it won't look like you know, some CrossFitter on Instagram who's like, you know, ass to grass with their chest upright and neutral spine. And so just remember that you are you and, and there's more to the limitations of a quad dominant squat than the ankle. And if a wedge doesn't fix it, if a wedge doesn't fix it, then it's very unlikely that mobility will fix it. It's probably a something else somewhere. It could be a weakness somewhere. It could also just be the way you're like the ratio of your limb length and stuff like that. Absolutely, man. The mobility and flexibility conversation is a very interesting one. I know occasionally I'll talk through this with clients where it's like, hey, I, I want to work on my flexibility more. And it's like, that's, that's fine. Why do you want to be more flexible? Or I want to work on mobility more. Okay, why do you want to be more mobile? Like, again, that, that's perfectly fine to support it if you, like, you can tie it back to like why this is important to you. And a lot, uh, well, I just like feel like I need to for health. And it's, I mean, the, be- the thing to understand is like if you can train, 
squat, hinge, lunge, push, pull through a full pain-free range of motion, your mobility doesn't restrict that, you're going to be able to do everything you need to in your day-to-day life. And like us getting more mobile in those movements, if we can already take them through a full range of motion, probably isn't necessarily going to be any more beneficial. So again, I think it's, it's almost similar to like the grip strength conversation where it's like, but what, what, like, how is that going to serve you positively? Right. So I know like for me, when I, I used to be like, it, like mind pump had their like prime and prime pro. And it was like, every workout has to start with like at least 20 minutes of mobility or I'm not doing it right. Um, I've definitely taken a hard turn from that, but I, I, I fully agree. I think for most people we like just getting bursa grips, elevating your heels more often than not makes sense. Unless you like, unless it's something where you really want to invest a little bit more time into it. And I don't, I don't pretend to like want to die, like diagnose why some people are like, oh, my hamstrings are tight or my hip flexors are tight or they use this word mm-hmm. tight. And I, I can't diagnose this over an Instagram Q and a, um, and I don't pretend to be a super expert on everything that has to do with the nervous system, but your muscles like, aren't really like, they're not like when you become more flexible or mobile, it's not because your muscle is like more elastic or it's longer or it's looser or it's some ambiguous, vague, nebulous term. What really is happening is your nervous system is allowing you to go into that range. And it, and it, you have to ask the question of why wasn't it allowing you to go there previously? And at least one of the reasons that is possible is strength. And so if you are doing a heel dominant, uh, a quad dominant split squat, which we, my group has been doing for three freaking mesocycles in a row, because it's a tough, like it's a neurologically complex movement to like really get down to really allow your, your knee to go very far past the toe. And a lot of people are finding that they're, you know, they might be limited by, by they're like, Oh, I'm, you know, my, my back leg hip flexor is tight or something like that. And it's also, you know, this word tight, again, I want to, we can move on from this, but I want you to at least question the fact of, am I just like, can I not drive my knees any further forward? Because my quads literally are too weak to handle that. And so you might find that just working within the range of motion you currently have and continuing to kind of find out where the limit of that is over time, your range of motion will open up because of this factor of strength that has to do with, you know, your nervous system, allowing you to go into this place. Uh, I found that people have magically increase the amount of knee flexion they get over the last three mesocycles magically. Mm-hmm. How is that possible? In the beginning, you were super tight. Well, maybe now you're stronger and your nervous system says, okay, we can go there because you can get out of that position. You're going to do just fine. Okay, absolutely. So basically what you're saying is probably like, if this is something you're focusing on, one of the, your best bets might be to just continue to focus on like slowly increasing range of motion over time and getting stronger in that range of motion. Is that pretty accurate? Sure. Totally. Cool. I, I really like to put that as um, mobility without strength is typically more instability, right? Like if you, you gain all this range of motion, like let's say you do a bunch of stretching before a set, so you're like quote unquote more flexible going into it, but you don't actually have strength in that range of motion. You're just like loading a range of motion where you're going to be actively weaker, which probably also isn't a good idea from an injury prevention perspective. Um, next question we have. Exercises to strengthen back so I don't round as I go up and wait for deadlifts. Yeah. Okay. So first, this is a this is a similar this is a similar discussion of you. You don't know what you don't know, and this is like a self diagnosis that most people do, where they're like, "Well, my back's rounding because it's weak." Um, it it might be weak. Uh, that's possible. Something that I've really found is that like you don't just like you don't need to be ass to grass squatting like not everybody's going to be able to conventionally deadlift from the floor with a neutral spine. Like I have a real, like 
if I deadlift from the floor, it doesn't look super clean. My, my spine is not super neutral. Now, if your spine is like rounding throughout the movement, like as you pick up the bar, it rounds even more. But if you like try and pick up the bar, every time you get to the bottom, you're unable to maintain a neutral spine position. I would elevate the bar until you get to a place that your current mobility allows you to get into a comfortable, strong, neutral spine position and then get strong there. And so what happened for me is like when I was, this has happened for me, I was working with some PTs. I thought this, I thought this pursuit of deadlifting from, from the floor was something I needed to do. We started on, you know, eight inch blocks. And then six inch block and then four inch block as I built some of that strength in that range of motion. And I was able to get lower with a neutral spine. And so my, my best advice might be elevating the bar. If you're finding that you can't even pick up the bar without losing neutral, mm-hmm. you know, you could, you could do some isolated, like lower back work, like, like actual lower back extensions, which are more like working through a range of motion. You can do some isometric stuff like Sorensen holds, which are like in a GHD or something where you're holding your body weight out and your lower back glutes posterior, your hands are the thing that's holding you kind of horizontal. Um, but, but part of me, first of all, we'd have to look at your form. I think, where are you breaking down? Are you breaking down mid rep? Um, you know, there could be some cueing here of like, you're not engaging certain muscles. You're not in those muscles and really engaging them, keeping that bar tight. But a lot of times I see people with just an emotional attachment to lifting from the floor when their structure really isn't built for that. And maybe, you know, maybe you lift from a one inch block or something like that. And all of a sudden everything feels amazing. You know, dude, if you have really short arms compared to the rest of your body, it's going to be really hard to conventionally deadlift. Like if you, you know, you see a lot of people that are really good deadlifters, they have like monkey arms. Like it's because that it's really easy for them to grip the bar and stay neutral. And so this, all of this stuff is like, oh, with the deadlift and the squat, there's like so much emotional attachment to doing it a certain way. You should be fitting the movement to your structure, not to the other way around. You shouldn't be shoving your your idea of what it should look like into your, like projecting that onto the way you think you're supposed to be doing it. Like you should be meeting yourself where you're at. And if you're having trouble lifting the bar off the ground, one, try taking some weight off, see if that fixes it. Two, try adjusting the range of motion, maybe elevate the bar on one inch block and see if that makes it better. If it does lift like that for six months and then see if you can go back to the floor and see if you've generated enough strength. I don't think this is the answer to this question is like, yeah, do a bunch of lower back extensions, planks and the Sorensen holds, and then go back to that. And you're going to crush this. Like, I don't know. I'd rather see you dial something back, get get your technique back to a place where you're very happy with it, and then work back up from that point. I, I fully agree. I think if I was going to break that out down into three simple points, I would probably say one, as you said, I wouldn't spend a ton of time like doing back extensions and trying to get a super long, strong lower back. I think a lot of times, like when we look at it from that perspective, people fail to realize that like, okay, yes, the muscles in my lower back do appear to be like a large part of what's lifting the weight, but my core is also what is underneath that and really like supporting my trunk as a whole. I think a lot of times this can just be like, Hey, you're not intentionally focusing on bracing. Maybe we actually need to focus on the bracing aspect of this too. As you said, maybe it's just not a good setup to pull from the floor for so many people. I just like a trap bar deadlift a lot better than a conventional deadlift. And again, like a lot of times, Hey, we will be doing a conventional deadlift for a specific reason. So it's not always the answer, but I think like if you're gin pop, Hey, I just want to get stronger. I want to look good. I want to feel good. A lot of times trap bar deadlift will make a little bit more sense, but there's no reason there's, there's no, there's no actual physiological reason to do, to use a barbell for this. Like you should like a trap bar is better in every way, shape or form. The only reason to use a barbell is because there's an emotional attachment to it, which <laughs> right. by the way is fine. If you like it and you want to use the barbell because 
you think using the barbell is awesome and you feel good, you feel badass using it, that's awesome. I promise you, you could also feel that way with a trap bar and probably get yourself into a more neutral spine position and have you know a little bit, little bit less likely injury prone technique. Uh, and so it's like, there's nothing where I'm like, you know what, the barbell's way better for this. Like, that's just not true. The trap bar is just as good, if not better in everything the barbell can do in this movement pattern. Um, and so, yeah, I love that answer. I didn't even think of moving to a trap bar. That's a fantastic answer. Thank you, dude. Very similar to what we talked about before with the squats. A lot of times we um, can get the stimulus we want and the setup we want with a lot less thought, a lot less thinking about like, okay, am I bracing here? Am I like all these mental cues, like that mental checklist that you have to run through to just like load up and do it is so much shorter. Typically, again, some people are just naturally great barbell deadlifters. It's going to depend so much on your anatomy. But for most people, I think you'll get a slightly better outcome there. Um, next question. How to know when to swap out a movement? Not a lot of context there. No, it's okay. There's like, um, let's, let's assume, let's assume. So, so let's, let's break this out of the realm of like, big swings in, in stimulus in terms of periodization. Mm-hmm. Let's assume nutritional status is saying is staying the same. Um, because if you're moving from a deficit or moving from a deficit up to maintenance or, or usually in other way is a bigger reason to change things. Let's say you go from more calories to less calories. That would, that would provide us at least with a little bit more reason to swap things for that specific reason. So let's take that off the table. Let's assume your nutrition status is the same. Let's assume that you're not um, necessarily, let's say you're a relative beginner when you don't, you're not like trying, you not, you don't need as much of these like big swings in periodization. Um, the way I like to explain it to clients is you need, it's like innocent until proven guilty. Like if you could do the same movements forever and make gains with them, you would like, there would be no reason to swap. We, we keep things the same unless there's a reason to change them. We periodization and swapping movements out, they are on a needs basis. Like we are doing them because we need to. Uh, if we need to. And so how do we know if we need to is the question. Obviously, first, I would just at least begin with a mentality of like, don't change this unless you need to. And so why would you need to is, in my opinion, one of three reasons why the first would be uh, an objective performance rating. And so like, are you progressing with this movement? Has it stalled out numerically? Uh, you know, did you PR this mesocycle? Did you, your, was your top week, your peak week numbers, were they indicative of progress? If the answer is yes, we move on to number two and we say, how do your joints feel? Uh, and it's like, okay, maybe I PR'd on my RDL, but I'm really starting to get some like hip pain when I'm in that deep position. And so maybe now I'm thinking, okay, like the RDL was going well and performance is good, but it's probably not worth this continue like kind of shaving or shaving is the wrong word, but we're, we're messing with the same joint in the same exact way. Maybe we, a different movement pattern can give those joints a little bit of a break. And the third would be if you're psychologically fatigued. And so a lot of times clients will be like, a lot of, it's so funny. Cause like, I've never, I, I, I would, I want to say never, maybe not never, but, but close to never, I've never had to swap out a movement because the client wasn't making progress on it. Like people can make progress on the same movement for a long freaking time. Um, I think it was Annie Miller who's on my podcast tomorrow. Funny enough. I think she had a post that I loved and it was like, imagine trying to progressive overload, but you change, you t- change exercises every mesocycle. And so like, y- y- realistically, you know, variation is like, a, is, is, it's not a myth, but you can make progress on the same moves for a long time. If you're periodically deloading, you're doing them well, you're, you know, if everything else is in check. And so it's rare that I get to a point where someone's like, you know, these hammer curls or these, you know, dumbbell RDLs are really, I'm not making any progress on these. It's rare that happens. 
it's also rare that I run into an issue where someone's like, yeah, these, these RDLs are going great, but I have hip pain. It's almost, it's usually the third one of like, I'm, I'm making some decent progress, maybe not as much as I was the first two mesocycles I was doing this, but I'm psychologically fatigued of doing it. And from a buy-in perspective, I would, I would prefer some sort of swap. And so I think you and I are, are baked a little bit more into the periodization realm where we can do some things from that regard. But if you're somebody out there kind of going through this process on your own, ask yourself if I'm, if I'm performing well, if I'm performing well, it doesn't hurt my joints. And psychologically I could gear up to do this again, do it again. Totally. Wait for a reason to change something in your program or the whole thing or the stimuli. And, and, and why I say one of those reasons might be um, a nutrition status change. And, and a note on that periodization, because so, so sometimes, sometimes I get a little bit like this where I'm like, like I struggle to kind of decide how I feel about it. Like even like periodization is a reactionary uh, tool. Like, you know, uh, I, I struggle to, 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 when I, when I watch sometimes like so much pro- proactive periodization, like if I work with Lindsay, I, I don't know who you work with, but I know that you've done the N1 courses. I've done the N1 courses. I've done the N1 courses at least three times of each of the programs, uh, you know, and so I get to the point where like these periodization is a powerful tool, but the whole point of periodization is to, is when the trainability of a stimulus goes down, which means when you've been hammering the same shit for a long time that you're not making progress on it, we can go somewhere else and make progress. And so it's a reactionary thing. Now we can be a little proactive in where we expect those things to happen, but periodization is reactionary. And, and other than nutritional status, you need a real reason you need a performance decrement. You need a joint issue. You need a psychological fatigue of doing something as a reason to change something. Otherwise, fuck it, man. Keep hammering the same stuff and making great gains. I couldn't agree more, man. Um, and I think we've learned from a lot of the same people because those are the same three reasons I give people for, hey, here's why we need to swap out a movement when the time comes. But also, if you're right. It is almost always the psychological fatigue. Like When I worked with Steve, I know there was three mesocycles in a row where I was doing rear foot elevated split squats for sets of 10 to 15. And that's a movement that I'm always super strong on. Also the rep range. Part of it was the rep range, which is brutal. But I know like by the end of my first set of those, I was always just like, fuck, dude. And I was, uh, it was getting to the point where like the the day and even the night before I had to go train those, I was just thinking about it like, fuck, like, (laughs) am I going to puke this time? Is this finally going to be the time that it happens? And I think that when we get to that point where it's like, Hey, could I have gotten a pretty similar, pretty similar stimulus from a leg press or a split squat? And it didn't take me five minutes to recover between sets, which that probably speaks to like, okay, maybe I needed to focus on a different aspect of periodization as a whole. Maybe I could have definitely benefited from like a metabolic phase, um, but that's an entirely different conversation. But I think like when we get to that point, like if you get to that point in the movement, it's for me, there's like from one end, it's like, yeah, I, I like for me personally, it's, I just need to not be a bitch. The re- I don't want to do it. So thus I feel like I like have to do it and I'm letting myself down if I ever stop doing it. Someone has to keep doing Bulgarian split squats for the rest of my life. But I think we can get to a point very similar to like the conversation we started off with versus like giving yourself grace and taking rest days. We can get to a point where like, hey, for what you actually want to build muscle, this is almost counterproductive. Like if we plug in again, like a leg press here, right? Let's say we're doing quad biased 
uh, split squat we plug in the quad bias leg press ascent rate we're going to get a very very similar outcome a lot less mental fatigue you might enjoy your training a little bit more and as a whole we'll probably get a slightly better result because of that right like there's no detriment really there's only positives that i but as you said that's almost always like when a movement comes up the time we need to i do i do like to compare mesocycle to mesocycle how is a movement progressing and then occasionally like if we see a movement does seem to be slowing down after a very long period of time progressing it or even the client seems to be getting a little bit bored with it we'll sometimes plug something else in but again i think that if it's the worst thing you can not the worst thing but it's much less productive if we're just looking at every mesocycle we're just going to plug in almost entirely new movements it's just going to be so hard like like you the to Andy's point it's just going to be so hard to actually know if you're ever overloaded anything from one mesocycle to the next and really it's going to be hard to make much progress at all i'm i'm um i think like if you're listening and you've never run the same program back to back or even back to back to back like you know there's something to be said about like there's some balance you do as a coach where i'm balancing the the buy-in from a psychological intrigue perspective of my client that they're excited to do it there's a novelty component i'm balancing that with what i already know which is man probably keeping more things the same than different is probably the best and so what what the way i like to think about this or at least the way it works in my brain is like man the first couple weeks of a mesocycle of a new movement it's just neurological gains and right. it's just you getting better at the movement so people are like oh you know it's so funny because if you just keep swapping everything you will get the illusion of getting stronger like crazy because every mesocycle you're going to do new stuff when you do new stuff you suck at it at first you get rapidly better at it mostly okay. through just neurological adaptations and so i get like little goosebumps thinking about this because this always happens where you know if you really want to just like if you really just want to make your client feel like they're making a lot of progress and give them a lot of like fun psychological gain just swatch swap shit up every mesocycle because they'll get rapidly stronger at new movements every mesocycle if you want them to actually make progress and you are a client who looks back five mesocycles prior and you're doing the same weights and reps that you were doing a little asterisk there a lot of times this happens with clients where they look back and they're wow i was doing the same weight and reps four mesocycles five mesocycles ago and what's really happened is that their technique or their tempo has massively improved and so it's really not apples to apples but if this happens man I, like i have a group and it's all it's a it's hundreds of people that i'm trying to weigh this option out and i'll say it out loud there will be a time where we I, there will be a time we run the same program three mesocycles in a row because while there is a novelty component that's exciting there is also an element of of uh you know the continuity element of knowing exactly where you're going to start on your moves this mesocycle because of where you left off knowing exactly what to expect there's some beauty in the continuity the same way that there's beauty going week to week and knowing what to do when you come in there's a beauty to knowing this is how last mesocycle went and I'm going to do the same thing and try and, you know, in the same way you progress week to week, try and progress mesocycle to mesocycle. Like we will do this at one point. And, and there's the allure of me implementing a lot of these fun rep schemes and, and superset techniques and pre-exhaust techniques that, that is tricky. And for me, I get like a little angst of like, what I know is best for these people is probably running some similar shit for a while. And, and, and what's cool is most people have probably never even stuck to the same program for several weeks. And so I know at least getting people to do that is already a big plus, right. um, but man, if you've never run back to back same programs, it is a really, really great idea. Give it a shot. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It's very much a kind of immediate gratification, which is constantly changing shit up. 
versus delayed gratification, which is oftentimes doing the same thing over and over for a long time, but getting a better result long-term because of it. All right, dude, I still appreciate you coming on. I've really enjoyed this. Before I let you go, will you let everybody know where they can find you and anything you'd like to plug? Sure. Yeah. I'm uh, pretty active on Instagram. So Jordan lifts fitness, come, come check out the Q and A's, come hang. Uh, and then right now really just pushing the group. So if you're interested in group programming, come check out, I have a podcast in my bio that explains it and everything else is in there. So thanks a lot, man. <laughs> of course, dude, I will link all that up. And again, thank you for being here, man. Thanks, bud.